All right, open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4. And tonight's study is Judgment is on the Way. Judgment is on the Way. And it's a title that's fitting for the day that this was written in Jeremiah's time. And it's fitting for today. Judgment is on the way. Here in chapter 4, we're in that time period when King Josiah was attempting to bring a reformation. But it was before the word of God had been found in the temple. So it was a reformation. That is an improvement and not revival. It wasn't a true regeneration because what was taking place was very superficial. Josiah was for real. And he was definitely moved by God. He had listened to Jeremiah's message. But the people weren't turning back to God in any real way. Even though Jeremiah hit home in some of the prophecies that he'd given. Now we're in the second message <clears throat> Jeremiah gave. It started in chapter 3 and it continues through chapter 6. And he deals with his backsliding people. And he said in chapter 3, verse 10, And yet for all this, that is all the shameless idolatry God you know, accused them of. He said, And for all of this, her treacherous sister Judah has not returned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. They were turning to God just in an outward way. That is, they were going to the temple. They were going to church. They were going through all the rituals. You know, they're doing what <clears throat> you normally do in church. But their heart wasn't in it. Their heart wasn't in it at all. It was something that Josiah was trying to make happen. Josiah was trying to make it happen. And this shows that there can be reformation without revival. But reformation without revival is never a true change. And it's not going to last long. And even though in Jeremiah's time there was reformation rather than a real turning to God, it was enough to move Jeremiah to give a great prophecy in chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Where he says in verse 18, he says that in those days all the nations will gather to the house of God in Jerusalem. And even that little bit of, of, of information should have alerted Judah not to make their, their temple worship ritualistic. But they didn't respond. They didn't listen. They didn't, take, they didn't take any action. They didn't take any action. And yet the Lord continues to call out to them in chapter 3, verse 22. He said, return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Come back to me. I'll heal your backslidings. And verses 1 and 2 here is God's response to their cry of suffering and his promise to bless them when they truly return to God. And from this point, the message is to Judah. And it's a call for more than just a superficial work, like what was going on here. And at the beginning of chapter 4, we find an expression of the Lord's response to any movement on the part of the people toward him. So in verses 1 through 4, we see that Jeremiah mourns over Judah. Let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 4. And it reads, If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. 
God is very interested in the people. And he wants to bring them back into a right relationship with himself. And he tells them that he won't remove them from the land, notice, under the condition, if they'll turn to him. And the word return here is a strong word that's used in the Old Testament for the idea of repentance. It means a conversion of the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. It means a complete turning away from anything and everything that's evil and to turn to God in total obedience and reverence. This means there has to be a clean break with corrupt forms of idolatrous worship. And there has to be a wholehearted, like I said, body, soul, and spirit return to the Lord. Verse 1 literally reads, literally reads like this. If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, to me you shall return. But the problem with the people was their dishonesty. They would speak the right language. They would use the right words. They sounded Christian. But they didn't mean it. They wouldn't mean it from their hearts. They would pray to the true and living God, but they didn't give up their false gods. What has to be involved in the word turning is the idea of forsaking everything and anything that's evil. God said, put away, forsake, do away with your abominations out of my sight. Repentance includes not just a change of attitude, but a change of behavior as well. You see, a person has to get rid of all things that caused his or her transgressions. Now, in Israel's case, it was the idols, in addition to the practices and the habits of sin. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 8 through 10, John the Baptist said to the, 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 the religious leaders of that day, he said, he has to bear fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, he was saying to the religious leaders, he says, hey, you guys, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and that you've turned to God. Don't just say to each other, hey, we're okay. We're safe. We're descendants of Abraham. John the Baptist said, that doesn't mean anything. Because believe me, God, God can create children of Abraham out of the rocks all around you. And John the Baptist, even now, the axe of God's judgment is ready to chop down every tree that doesn't produce good fruit and throw it in the fire to be burned. In other words, John the Baptist told the religious leaders, God demands results. Don't tell me you're a child of God. Show me you're a child of God. Old Testament and New Testament repentance are the same here. And God now says in Israel's case, if you do these things, you shall not be moved. Again, the word if. If you do these things. Notice that there's man's part and there's God's part. You do what God commands and God will do what he promises. In other words, you won't be an unsettled wanderer, he said to the people, in a strange land anymore. You won't stray away anymore. Verse 2. And you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. So the next step that Israel should take is to admit that there's no help outside or apart from God. That's what's suggested here, where Jeremiah says, You shall swear the Lord lives. 
And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And an oath was a very powerful thing with the Hebrews. For, the he- for Hebrews to swear by a deity was to recognize its existence and to call on its power. And if a Hebrew could truthfully say in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness that the Lord lives, it was a confession, it was an acknowledgement that the Lord was the living one, the only true living one, and that he alone had existence, and all other gods had no reality at all. They were nothing. Hey, it was easy to say, as the Lord lives. It's easy to say, oh, praise the Lord, hallelujah. But not mean it. They said, as the Lord lives, but they didn't say it in truth, justice, and righteousness. Jeremiah knew that if the nation could honestly say these words, in truth, justice, and righteousness, the problem of idolatry would quickly be over. If Israel would do this, she would become a light to the nations. And the nations, as a result, would glory. That is, they would boast in the living God. Verse 3. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Jeremiah knew that if there wasn't total commitment to God, there would be no change of heart. No change of heart would take place. And Jeremiah knew if there, was that, if there was no total commitment to God, that it would take nothing less than a total transformation of the hearts of his people to enable the nation to find its way back to God and to turn away the calamity and the disaster that was quickly approaching. In other words, outward religion won't do. Going through the motions, saying the right things wouldn't do. Religion has to be an inward and personal thing. It has to be inward and personal personal if the nation, if the nation's situation was going to get better. So Jeremiah there in verse 3 says, notice, break up your fallow ground. In other words, break up the hard ground of your hearts. You see, their hearts were hard. And they were filled with thorns like a neglected garden, like a neglected field that hadn't been plowed. The life of the nation had become so hardened by the years of idolatrous practices and disgusting immoral living, the wrong living. All that the adulterous practices and the disgusting living, it, 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 you know, it hardened God's truth. God's truth couldn't grow in it, couldn't grow in their hearts. Like ground that isn't properly cultivated, pretty soon it is covered with thorns and weeds. And that was the ground of the nation's life of Judah and Israel. And the thorns that were growing there, they were the natural result of unregenerate human nature. A life apart from God. And among other things, they included thorns of careless living, social injustice, past grievances, hypocrisy, and unforgiveness. It's impossible for righteousness and true holiness to flourish where these things... These evil things are flourishing as well. The things that King Josiah was doing may have cut some of these things down. May have chopped some of these weeds down, but he failed to pull them out by the roots. And how many times when you just hack a weed, guess what? It grows right back. You've got to pull it out by the roots. 
So it wasn't long before they grew back again, but stronger and wilder than ever. The religion of the living God demanded a drastic transformation. Unless there is a drastic transformation in our life, it's not going to help us in our final destiny. God demanded a drastic transformation of the heart life of, of, of each individual and nation. And this is the beginning of Jeremiah's emphasis on inward religion that is so typical that, that that's what his ministry was all about. It was typical of his ministry. He preached an inward religion. And the idea of total transformation of the heart is one of the basic doctrines of the Old Testament. I'm sorry, of the New Testament. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 3.10, Therefore, every heart which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Verse 4 now. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. You men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, <clears throat> lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Now here Jeremiah <clears throat> goes for even, in de- uh, even an even deeper truth than his fallow ground in- uh, illustration. He's changing the figure of speech here. Now what did he mean by this figure of speech? Well, Jewish boys were circumcised when they were eight, di- eight days old and, and they, made, they were made a son of the covenant. But no amount of surgery on the body could change the heart. The Jews thought that this ritual of circumcision guaranteed their salvation. But you see, God wanted them to operate on their hearts. To put away their callousness and disobedience. <clears throat> and a lot of people today depend on other things. Like the Jews did in circumcision. Today, people depend on baptism. They get ba- I've heard it many times. They say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I was baptized. Yeah, I'm saved. I was baptized. All right? They depend on baptism. They depend on the Lord's Supper. Communion. Some call it the Eucharist. They believe that that saves them. Or confirmation. I made my confirmation growing up and thought I was on my way to heaven. Or some other religious ritual you know, they would do for their salvation when what God really wants from us is sincere faith from a repentant heart. Salvation is a gift that we receive by faith. It's not a reward that I earn by something that I do or things that I say or ways that I behave. Not something that we earn by being religious or being good or doing good. The idea of circumcision wasn't something new to those that he was talking to because since Abraham's time, it was the procedure for, uh, for entering the Hebrew religion. And it was the responsibility of every man, of every family in Israel. And from Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 through 12, circumcision meant something more than cutting off a small piece of skin. Taken in, in its context, when Jeremiah says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, teaches that there has, to take, there has to take place a complete transformation in the hearts of men in order for them to be acceptable to God. A radical change was needed in the lives of the people of Judah at this time. A cleansing, a, remo- a, removal, a removal of impurity 
is what's pictured here by Jeremiah's figure of speech. And it could be nothing less. Nothing less than a pure heart is what's being stressed here. So to kind of sum up the meaning of verse 4 here, number one, circumcision of the heart speaks about an inner work of God that shows itself in the outward behavior. Secondly, it has to do with the removal of impurity from the spiritual faculties of man. Third, it's a radical change that goes to the deep, the deep part of man's moral character, his nature. And fourth, the operation performed is essential. It's necessary to man's basic spiritual needs. And fifth, God demands moral holiness. God demands moral holiness in man. God calls for holiness. According to Jeremiah, if men don't obey God's requirements for this inner purification, all they can expect is judgment and destruction. That's all that's waiting for them. And then in verses 5 through 13 now, this coming invasion is around the corner. So verses 5 through 13 speak of a coming invasion. So look at verses 5 through 13. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet in the land. Cry, gather together and say, Assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. Set up the standard toward Zion. Take refuge. Do not delay. For I will bring disaster from the north and great destruction. The lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. To make your cities, uh, your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant. For this, clothe yourself with sackcloth, lament and wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that the heart of the king shall perish and the heart of the princes, the priests shall be abolished and the priests shall wonder. Then I said, ah, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying you shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, A dry wind of the desolate heights blows in the wilderness toward the daughter of my people, not to fan or to cleanse. A wind too strong for these will come for me. Now I will also speak judgment against them. Behold, he shall come up like clouds and his chariots like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are plundered. So again, these verses 5 through 13 speak of a coming invasion. The words blow the trumpet here. Blowing the trumpet was usually the way people were warned about a danger that was coming. It was like it was making an, it was an alarm to tell the people, hey, danger's coming. And how great that danger is. That, that Jeremiah is warning the people about. It's pointed out by the suggestion that the whole land should be stirred up and gathered together by these words that he uses to spread the alarm. He says in verse 6, cry, go to those fortified cities of Judah and get ready for battle because I will bring disaster from the north, God is saying, and great destruction is coming. To set up the standard towards Zion means mark out a route for those looking for shelter in Jerusalem. The lion, he says in verse 7, is already on his way. The lion could be Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, the destroyer of nations or the destroyer of Gentiles, who later came with fierceness against Judah. 
He says, and your cities will be laid waste without inhabitants. He says, hey guys, the enemy is coming. The danger is just around the corner. And those words are just as applicable this evening. In verse 9, Jeremiah describes the victims as trembling because of God's judgment. The king and the officials are going to tre- will tremble in fear. The priests will be struck with horror and the prophets are going to be appalled. Jeremiah says you will lament and wail. Why? Verse 8 says, because the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. In the crises of life, the, right, the unrighteous man, they're going to crash and burn. They're going to go down because they don't have any inner support to give them strength. Outwardly in verse 10, it sounds like, now notice, let's look at verse 10 again. Notice what Jeremiah says. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying you shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. Now, outwardly in verse 10, it sounds like Jeremiah is, you could say, rebuking the Lord, challenging God. Lord, you've deceived us. You deceived the people, telling them you shall have peace when there was no peace. You're talking about this, this, this enemy, this invasion that's approaching when you said there was going to be peace. He said terrible judgment was coming to Judah, but they weren't ready for it because the people believed the deceptive message of peace that was proclaimed by the false prophets. Like Hananiah, they said peace, peace when there is no peace. The false prophets who prophesied about a time of peace when in reality, despair was more like the case. But they thought it couldn't happen to them because, come on, after all, we have the temple. We have the Ark of the Covenant. But you see, all they had were symbols of God, but not God himself. And Jeremiah is having a problem here reconciling that wonderful promise of peace made to Israel in earlier days with now this terrible judgment that he sees coming. Lord, you told us that we're going to have peace, but now there's this judgment coming. And he says the sword reaches the heart, that is, to the life. The sword reaches the life. People are going to die. And this short interruption, after this short interruption, Jeremiah goes on to warn them. He says, the coming calamity is compared to one of the winds in verse, that verse 11 speaks about that would blow from the desert into Judah. And if the winds were mild, they were helpful. They were useful for winnowing the grain. But if they were too strong, it would ruin everything in its path like a deadly tornado. And in the same way, the enemy from the north would be destructive to the people of Judah. A similar metaphor is used in verse 13 to emphasize his message even more. He describes this disaster coming from the north in verse 6 as moving towards Jerusalem like a terrible tornado of doom. He says in verse 13, our enemy is rushing down on us like storm clouds. The chariots of the enemy are like whirlwinds. Their horses are swifter than eagles. And says how terrible it's going to be. We're doomed. We're doomed. And then in verses 14 through 18, we see a call for repentance as a result. Verses 14 through 18. 
O Israel, I'm sorry, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness that you may be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims affliction from, from Mount Ephraim. Make mention to the nations. Yes, proclaim against Jerusalem that watchers come from a far country and raise their voice against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field, they are against her all around because she has been rebellious against me, says the Lord. Your ways and your doings, notice, have procured these things for you. This is your wickedness because it is bitter because it reaches to your heart. Jeremiah is so encouraged by what he sees that he lets out a really mournful cry. He said, you know, God's calling him to repentance. He said, look, you guys, look, Jerusalem, cleanse your heart so that you can be saved. How long will you hide your, your evil thoughts in your heart? Jeremiah seems to be saying, hey, guys, be warned, be forewarned. He says the news has already been announced in Dan about this approaching uh, invasion. In verse 15 there. The news has already been announced in Dan. Dan was the most northern part in Israel and, and, and has also been proclaimed, he said, in Mount Ephraim, which is a, was approximately one mile away. From Dan and to Mount Ephraim, that enemy from the north is coming. It's been announced. Cleanse your heart so that you'll be saved. And he says, and the nations, according to verse 16, may also know that Jerusalem is, is, is marked for destruction because watchers, apparently besiegers, or those coming to, to, to blockade or surround uh, Jerusalem, they're coming from a far country. And they're close by now. They're close to us by now. And they're ready to lay siege, to barricade, blockade the cities of Judah. Jeremiah is, is pleading with his people to repent, and he's pointing out why the judgment is coming. Notice what he says there in verse 18. Notice, your ways and your doings have procured these things for you. This is your wickedness. You see here, he's telling them why this is happening. Your own actions have brought this upon you. You have nobody to blame but yourselves because you've been so rebellious against God. You've brought this upon yourself. He says your punishment is bitter because of your wickedness. Your wickedness has, so gone, so, has gone so deep into your character, into your nature, that you're, that you're rotten to the core. Verses 19 through 22, we see the groaning of the heart. Verse 19 through 22. Again, sorrow for the doomed nation. Oh, my soul, my soul. I am pained in my, in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried for the whole land is plundered. Suddenly my tents are plundered and my curtains in a moment. How long will I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children and they have no understanding. They are, notice, they are wise to evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. By now, Jeremiah recognizes, without a doubt, the disaster and the doom that's waiting for the people that he loves. His own sorrow over Judah's sin is so great that he can't hold back anymore. 
He grieves, he mourns, he's, he's saddened with a bitter cry. In verse 19, he says, My heart, my heart, I writhe in pain. In heartbreaking words, Jeremiah describes his broken heart over what he sees. He's so deeply touched in his emotions that, that it's too deep for words. But he has to say something. Verse 19, he says, you know, look what he says in verse 19. He says, this, um, I am pained in my heart. My heart makes a noise in me. He, he, what he's saying is that, that my heart pounds within me. I can't be still. The whole land, he says, is going to be plundered in verse 20. And then the tents and the curtains speaks of dwellings. He says, how, mu- how long must I see the battle flags and hear the trumpets of war blowing? It seems like this is something that Jeremiah is just, he can't bear to watch. He can't bear to see this happening. But the real reason for the bitterness and pain is found again, notice in verse 22. My people are foolish. They have not known me. They're silly children. They have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. He says the people were foolish. They didn't know God. He said they were silly. And lacked un- they lacked understanding. He says, notice what he said. They're clever enough at doing wrong, but they have no idea how to do right. And isn't that the truth when, before we got saved? Boy, we were clever at doing wrong. We were inventive at doing wrong. But to do right, I had no idea. But if they had been just as skillful in holy living as they were in sinning, God would have blessed them instead of judging them. And then in verse 23 through 26, we see the extensive uh, disaster that's on its way. Verse 23 through 26. Jeremiah says, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. And the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they tremble, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. It seems as if Jeremiah sees uh, sees past Judah's destruction for, for the moment and, and goes back to a further time, uh, a further distance, uh, distant time. It, it sounds like the creation. He saw the, the, the world in void and, and, and with no light. And so while thinking about Judah's end here, it seems like Jeremiah has seen beyond to the end of all things. Things are back to ancient times, he says. The chaos of Genesis 1-2. Jerah finds himself alone in the universe. The end has come, I'm sorry, the end has become like the beginning. There was nothing. Everything wiped out. He said where once there had been fruit and flowers, now there's nothing but barrenness and waste. A total wilderness according to verse 26. And all the cities were broken down. They were gone. They used to be thriving cities there, but they're gone. Because of the Lord's fierce anger, according to verse 26, the Lord's fierce anger has brought this all about. Suggesting that man's sin has been so great that the earth has been wiped out. God's judgment has cleaned house. And it's going to happen again. 
We're going to see the, the earth wiped out. We're going to see a new heaven and a new earth. The earth's time has been completed in this, in this picture by Jeremiah. An earth-shattering ending has come to the universe. Now, this isn't new. This wasn't something new with the prophets. But Jeremiah has seen in a flash, in just a, a little moment of inspiration, he saw what others had talked about. He passes his vision on to us. Now, it, this moment that, that Jeremiah saw this, this vision, it didn't last uh, very long before Jeremiah was back now with what was going to happen to Judah. And that situation, the burden of Judah uh, in, in his heart. We close now with verses 27 through 31. For thus says the Lord, The whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. For this shall the earth, for this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black, because I have spoken, I have purposed, and will not relent, nor will I turn back from it. The whole city shall flee from the noise of the horsemen and bowmen. They shall go into thickets and climb up on the rocks. Every city shall be forsaken, and not a man shall dwell in it. And then, when you are plundered, what will you do? Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you will make yourself fair or beautiful. Your lovers will despise you, they will seek your life. For I have heard a voice as of a woman in labor, the anguish as of her who brings forth her first child, the voice of the daughter of Zion bewailing herself. She spreads her hands saying, Woe is me now. For my soul is weary because of murders. So now it's all about over. Jeremiah understands that Jerusalem's fate is clear. But he understands that God's judgment has been softened with mercy. God always tempers his judgment with mercy. Verse 27 says, The whole land shall be desolate, ruined. Yet, he says, I will not make a full end. In other words, I won't totally destroy it. Even though God is loving and merciful, He's going to judge sin. He will judge sin. And sin will be punished. There's no doubt about it. He said, I've made up my mind there, verse 28. I'm not going to relent. I'm not going to change my mind. And verse 30 here is focusing on Jerusalem. Jerusalem here is pictured as an immoral woman who tried to avoid her fate. He says, by getting all dressed up. Notice in verse 30, right in the middle, he says, uh, right at the, uh, and when, you, when you're plundered, notice, what will you do? Notice, though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you will make yourself fair. Again, Jerusalem is pictured as an immoral woman who had tried to avoid her fate by getting all dressed up. She put on beautiful clothing. She, 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 she put on uh, gold jewelry. She, she brightened up her eyes with makeup. She played the harlot, but all for nothing. He says, in vain. God says, in vain you make yourself fair. In other words, you're, you're, you're primping you're getting all dolled up is not going to do you any good because the allies who you were lovers with despise you and they seek to kill you now. In other words, it's too late, Drew. Flatteries and charms won't be enough. The game's over. 
Jeremiah has seen the end of the city. He knows that sin, when it has run its full course, it brings death. James 1.15, James said, When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings, brings forth death. Paul said in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. You play, you're going to pay. So that's the way it is with the city that's played the harlot. Jeremiah says in verse 31, I hear a cry like a woman that's in labor. And the cry is one of whose agony is unbearable. And it's, it's, and it's the cry of beautiful Jerusalem. Agonizing, gasping for breath, crying out. Jeremiah says she spreads her hand saying, help me, I'm being murdered. Jerusalem here is in her death throes. She's in the last moments of death. Verse 31 is a serious and terrible statement about the day of God's judgment on unrepentant men. Let unrepentant men be warned and know for sure that the day of God's judgment is coming and it's waiting for them. And if you're not saved, all you can expect is the fiery judgment of hell when he comes, when that judgment day comes. You know, we can hear that all day long and, and take it for granted, not think much about it. But when the day comes, it's going to be for real. As long as we have breath within us, we can ask God's forgiveness. But when we breathe the last, it's done. Our fate is sealed. And we've brought judgment upon ourselves. We'll never be able to blame God. He's warned us over and over again. For over 2,000 years, we've been warned that we need to repent. We need to receive Christ's forgiveness. Because again, once, once we breathe our last, there's no, there's no going back. There's no say, oh Lord, I was going to, I meant to, and I wanted to. No. It's a done deal. Just like it says here, they procured their own fate. They brought it upon themselves. It was all their own doing. We won't ever be able to blame anybody but ourselves. Father, we thank you so much for your word here. We thank you for your goodness, Father. We thank you for your, your Lord, your, your mercy. Truly, you are merciful, God. Because you still have opened the door of grace to us, Lord. And if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ or maybe you're watching at home <clears throat> and you've never made that commitment to Christ, this isn't the time to be putting it off. This isn't the time to wait for a better day, a more convenient time. God's word says today is the day of salvation. Today because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. 
And if the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart this evening and you recognize the truth of God's Word, the power of God's Word, the reality of God's Word, that judgment is coming, all we have to do is look around at the world tonight and we can see God's judgment being poured out upon our land. If the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart, is speaking to your heart, and you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, and not play around like Israel did who said, oh, I go to church, we have the temple, and we do our rituals, we do our thing. No. It's just an outward display, but no inward heart for God. If you want to receive Jesus Christ, I'm going to say this prayer out loud. Lead you in this prayer, and you repeat it to the Lord with all of your heart. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. And I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with the Holy Spirit and help me now to follow you, to obey you, to walk with you all the days of my life. And thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you need a Bible.